0: let's turn to God's Word today where we are going to look at this Christ that we have just sung about. We're turning to the end of Mark chapter 14. I'll uh, be away the next two weeks, so Dr. Light and Dr. Kiefer will be taking you through chapter 15 and the death of Christ, but this morning we want to look at the remaining events surrounding Jesus' arrest and betrayal. If you were with us last week, you know that we watched as Jesus' disciples ignored His warnings, slept through His prayers, and fled at His arrest as Judas betrayed Him with a kiss, and the rest of the disciples abandoned their Savior. This morning, we want to look at the culmination of Jesus' arrest and betrayal as the Sanhedrin Judges him to be guilty, and Peter denies him three times. So we're looking at Mark 14. We're going to begin reading in verse 53, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, and the elders, and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. He was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands." yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him, to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. and wept. Father, I do pray that you would be with us this morning and that your spirit would apply these words to our hearts, that you might draw us closer to Christ and magnify Christ in our minds and make us more like him for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, maybe we could start with a little personal quiz I wonder if you can call to your mind what the ninth commandment is. Now, some of you might know right off the top of your head which commandment is the ninth commandment. Some of you might need to sing through the Ten Commandments song real quickly until you get to number nine. Or maybe you need to do your Ten Commandments hand motions and figure out what number nine is. Or maybe you can just ask your first or third grade uh, student who I think uh, covers the Ten Commandments this year in Sunday school to remember that the ninth commandment is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And as many of you could likely also tell me, to bear false witness means to lie about a person or a situation this morning's passage gives us two examples of bearing false witness. Mark is continuing to trace here the suffering of Jesus on his way to the cross. And this morning he is condemned by false witnesses who frame him as guilty, and he is denied by the false witness of Peter who fears associating with him. So the focus today is again on the suffering of Jesus, and particularly it is his suffering through the injustice he bears from those who hate him and the further abandonment he suffers from the one who loves him. And we want to look at each of these. So we'll start by looking at verses 53 to 65 as we focus on the suffering of Jesus first from the false witnesses in this unjust trial. Mark tells us that after being led away by that motley mob with swords and clubs, Jesus was led to the house of the high priest. And that by early in the morning, all of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes had gathered together so that the whole council might cast judgment on Jesus. However, nearly everything about this trial is unjust. To begin capital trials were not to take place on the eve of a Sabbath day or a festival. And if you remember what's happening this week, it is the eve of a Sabbath as well as being on a festival. Further, capital cases, according to the Jewish Mishnah, required a second hearing the following day to confirm the judgment in order to guard against a hurried or emotionally driven guilty verdict. And of course, the Jewish leaders do not do that here. The Sanhedrin also were to gather in their chambers, the, the hall of hewn stones in the temple, for uh, issuing judgment. However, all the gospels state that this gathering happened early in the morning in Caiaphas's own house, likely so that they could again be gathering by stealth out of the public eye as they cast this judgment on Jesus. Now, any of you who are involved with the law know the importance of following the rules in order to preserve justice. In fact, today, even a guilty man may not be convicted if his guilt is discovered or prosecuted in illegal ways, and this is a cornerstone of our justice system because it maintains the credibility of the courts and the system of justice is preserved. But here in Jesus' case, the rules are bent or broken in order to get the outcome the Jewish leaders wanted quickly and quietly. But the rules are the least of the injustices in this trial, really. More significant, the witnesses called to testify against Jesus are false witnesses. And not only are they false witnesses, but they're false witnesses that the chief priests and the council themselves seem to have sought out and brought together. Nothing like the very judges of the trial bringing out the false witnesses that are going to testify." Unfortunately for them, the falsehood is evident in the fact that their testimonies did not even agree with one another. You might think that if you sought out false witnesses and were going to lie anyways, you might take the time to make sure your testimony agreed with each other, but apparently they did not do that. Others, Mark tells us, proclaimed that they heard Jesus say he would destroy the temple and then build it again in three days. However, that also is false testimony because that's not what Jesus said. If you were to flip over to John chapter 2, verse 19, you would hear Jesus' words there. Jesus said, If the Jews destroyed this temple, he would raise it up again in three days. He did not say, I will destroy the temple and raise it up again in three days. That's a very significant difference of who's going to destroy the temple in Jesus' words. And so, again, the testimony is false, although Mark says even in that they did not agree. And if you, if you read verses 55 through 59, it reads like a string of incompetencies in the courtroom. A long list of contradictory false witnesses saying all sorts of things that didn't hold together such that even a biased Sanhedrin who wants to convict him realizes they can't give a guilty verdict based on what has been said. Now, we may be so familiar with this story that we lose some of the weight of the injustice that's being done to Jesus, but I wonder if we put these actions in another context, if it might bring that more to our minds. Just last year, Willie Stokes was released from a Philadelphia prison after spending 37 years in that Philadelphia prison for murder. He was released when it was discovered that the chief witness against him had lied under oath. And further, it was discovered that the reason this witness lied under oath is because he was bribed by the police to give this falsehood in order to close a case that they had no leads on whatsoever. 37 years he spent in jail. Can you imagine what it would have felt like to be Willie Stokes in that courtroom, knowing that you were innocent and did not do the crime you were accused of, but hearing a man lie about you, and then finding out that it was the very authorities themselves that had bribed that person to lie? leading to 37 years in prison. And we we ache at that kind of injustice, don't we? And yet here is Jesus sitting on trial, faced with lying witness after lying witness, sought out by the very Sanhedrin, judging him, knowing that death by crucifixion is the consequence. Of course, at the root of all of this injustice, is the fact that the judges themselves, the Sanhedrin, have already decided that Jesus must die. They're just looking for the excuse to make it happen. I just imagine that, being on trial and slowly realizing that you're not actually on trial at all because the group judging you has already decided you're guilty, and they're just casting about looking for the reason to justify it. That's the situation that we are faced with here. That's what Jesus is facing. And we begin to feel the weight of the injustice that he suffers. Finally, though, the high priest stood up in exasperation at the futility of all this, and he tried to bait Jesus. He says, he says to him, have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But, of course, they hadn't testified anything truly against Him, and so Jesus doesn't take the bait. He remains silent and makes no answer. Now, Jesus' refusal to give an answer, of course, is strategic. Jesus is not going to hang Himself uh, on these words, but it's more than that. His very silence is confirming again to the Sanhedrin His identity and who He is. Because you remember Isaiah 53, verse 7, talking about the suffering servant who would take our sins upon himself. Isaiah 53 had said that this servant of the Lord would be oppressed and afflicted, and certainly we see that in our passage. Yet, Isaiah said, he would not open his mouth. He would be led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he would not open his mouth. And so Jesus is perfectly fulfilling these verses. And the irony is that in this very trial to condemn Jesus for who he claims to be, Jesus gives further evidence of who he is from the Scriptures as he fulfills these prophecies that those leaders should have known so well. Well, the high priest tries again. This time, verse 61 He asks, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, Jesus' answer here stands out in the narrative of Mark. You've been with us here through the last 14 chapters, and and if you think back over the last year, what you'll remember is that every time there came a point for Jesus to publicly proclaim who he was, he said not to. He would heal someone, and he would say, go home and don't proclaim what has happened here. Peter would confess, you are the Christ, and Jesus would say, tell no one. And yet here Jesus is on trial before the court, asked, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus gives a ringing declaration. He says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Of course, for three years, Jesus did not want people proclaiming that he was the Messiah because they had the wrong idea of what the Messiah was here to do. But now Jesus has come to the moment of his suffering and death. Now he will be shown to be not only the Son of God, but the suffering servant. Not a Messiah who would ride, or ride into glory in Jerusalem at that moment, but a Messiah who would die on behalf of his people. And so he declares who he is. And once again, even in his declaration, Jesus appeals to Scripture. You hear there his reference to Psalm 110, verse 1, where the Lord says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus quotes from Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel saw in his vision one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, who was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and language should serve Him forever. So here is Jesus proclaiming Himself to be the Son of Man, whom all these people will see seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And by proclaiming these things, Jesus is fulfilling prophecies again over the centuries, and He's proclaiming Himself to be David's Lord, the one to be at the right hand of God, the one who would have dominion forever over God's people. This is an exalted claim in addition to affirming, yes, I am the son of the blessed one. Of course, this leads Caiaphas to tear his clothes in anger and says, well, we don't even need any witnesses anymore. You've all heard his blasphemies. Apparently the entire assembly agrees and they condemn him to death. The one thing this council never appears to have considered is that Jesus might be telling the truth. They hear Jesus' proclamation and immediately say, well, if He said that, He's got to be guilty of death. And yet here is Jesus proclaiming truly who He is. Despite all of the signs and the miracles He has given, despite the prophecies He has fulfilled, they use His words, ...as the excuse they need to condemn him to death. Once he's condemned, some begin to spit on him, to strike him, to mock him. They cover his eyes and say, prophesy, you son of God, who punched you? As we read these, one commentator begins to make a list of the ironies of this trial and this moment. The Sanhedrin has used the law to condemn Jesus but they broke the law to do it while Jesus upheld the law. These rulers and guards mock Jesus and his ability to prophesy at the very moment that he's fulfilling all of God's prophecies. And they condemn Jesus for blasphemy. But Jesus spoke the truth while the high priest himself has uttered blasphemy. Since Jesus is in fact the Son of God. And so it is that the false witnesses and the injustices of the trial and the undeserved abuse stack up as we see more and more what Jesus endured and suffered for our sake. But while all this is going on, there's another false witness that's taking place. And so I want to move on to verses 66 to 72 now. We've seen the false witnesses of this trial. Now let's turn to one of Jesus' disciples who had fled, but now has turned back and followed at a distance. And you can feel in Peter, can't you, the tension in his own heart? You can feel the fear he has of being caught, but also his desire to know what is going to happen. Verse 66, it's still in that uh, pre-dawn darkness in coldness. You know how it is just before dawn, and that dark and, and that cold. And so Peter comes into the courtyard of the high priest and stands warming himself by a fire. Now, this fire wasn't just a little pile of coals for roasting marshmallows. This was a large blaze for heat and light. It's the two things they needed in that hour Uh, of, uh, of darkness. And so Peter draws near, but as he does so, he comes into the light of the fire. In fact, the word Mark uses here is the word for light, and he's exposed there. He's exposed. And so a servant girl sees him and says, wait a second, you too were with that Nazarene Jesus, weren't you? Now remember, this is Peter. Peter was the first one to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Peter is the one who had said that even if he had to die, he would never deny Jesus. Peter is the one whose own mother-in-law had been healed from sickness and saved by Jesus. Peter's the one who'd been rescued from drowning and able to walk on the waves by Jesus. Peter's the one who had been up on the mountain of transfiguration and seen Jesus in his glory. So we think surely Peter is going to publicly proclaim who Jesus is and his association with Jesus, right? Wrong. Peter has clearly been shaken by the events of this night. He is so afraid of the potential consequences for himself that a servant girl is enough to scare him stiff. And so Peter responds, no, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I neither know nor understand what you are saying. Clearly, the question scares Peter because we read in the next verse that he left the fire and went back into the gateway. In other words, he was exposed in the light. Someone had recognized him, so he leaves the light of the fire, goes where it's dark, probably a little bit more crowded out by the gateway. But this pesky servant girl finds him there again, and she proclaims to the bystanders there, surely this man is one of them. But again, Peter denies it. Matthew in his gospel tells us that this second time Peter actually denied it with an oath, adding strength to his denial of Jesus. Well, Peter finally seems to get rid of the, the servant girl, but a little while later, all the bystanders gang up on him. And they say, Surely you are one of them because you are a Galilean. Now, this time, Jesus doesn't, or excuse me, Peter doesn't just swear an oath, he actually invokes a curse, calling down a curse from God on himself, saying, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now, just think about that. Peter is saying, may God curse me if I am lying. I do not know this man. That is the strength in which he is saying, I don't know Jesus, and he's trying to protect himself. But just then, the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered the words of Jesus. Luke, in his gospel, says that Jesus actually turned and looked Peter in the face from across the courtyard. Can you imagine that? Seeing Jesus' face, look at you, knowing what you had just done, remembering Jesus' words, and the effect is complete. Peter breaks down and weeps. He, too, has borne false testimony against the man he knows is the Christ and the Son of God. But here's the interesting thing. Peter has just told three lies, denying Jesus. Even when Jesus had warned him, given all the benefits Jesus had, and we think, what what a high-handed sin of deceit Peter has just committed here. But despite the boneheadedness of Peter, as I thought about his example this week, I could not feel any scorn for Peter in my heart. I wonder if you feel the same way. And I think it's because I have little room to put myself above Peter. Because how often have we fallen into sin? How often have we failed despite our best protestations? How much do we know our own sin and guilt? And so when we look at Peter here, we see a fellow sinner. And so perhaps, can I share four observations about Peter's denial here? Four observations for us to meditate on and to learn from as fellow sinners this morning. The first observation is this. Every one of us is susceptible to temptation And just consider Peter. Peter is not a new disciple here. It's not as if Peter just showed up for the Passover and thought, well, why don't I check out this Jesus guy? And then he ended up, you know, denying him. No, Peter was the very first disciple that Jesus called. He was the first one Jesus called back in Mark chapter 1. He's been following Jesus for three years. And he hasn't just been following Jesus. He's been walking intimately with him, seeing him in his glory knowing Him in His power, hearing Him in His teaching, confessing Him as the Christ and Lord. And it's Peter who denied Jesus. Reflecting on Peter, Scottish preacher Colin Smith says, it is possible after years of following Jesus to love Him less intensely, follow Him less closely, and obey Him less completely if we take him for granted and go through the routine rather than increasing in our knowledge of him so that we love and worship him more. But Peter hasn't just been following Jesus for three years. Peter has also shown great moments of spiritual success. Peter was the one who confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. And then Peter denied Jesus. A few weeks after the resurrection, Peter is the one who's going to preach at Pentecost and scorn the threats of the Jewish leaders proclaiming it is better to obey God than men. But that same Peter, a little while later, according to Galatians 2, is the one who will abandon fellow Gentile believers because he was afraid of what some visiting Jewish Christians might think of him. See, one success does not put us above falling the next day. It will do us no good to think we are above or beyond certain temptations just because we have done well for a time. Rather, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians ten twelve, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. See, the presence of God's Spirit certainly gives us great hope for sanctification and growing in righteousness. But in this life, with the old habits of this flesh still in us, and Satan seeking to tempt us, we must be aware of how susceptible we are to temptation. And it does not matter how long we have followed the Lord or how many recent successes or victories we may have won, we are still susceptible to temptation. And only our awareness of the danger will keep us alert to watch and to pray lest we enter temptation. That's the first observation for us to learn from this morning. Second is this. We learn from Peter's example the importance of fleeing temptation as soon as we recognize it. Do you notice here how Peter hangs around and hangs around and hangs around? And there might be someone who would say, well, at least Peter's in the vicinity. Isn't that better than abandoning him and still being hiding off in the woods somewhere? But I don't think so not given what we know. See, Peter had already tried to demonstrate his courage by pulling out his sword to defend Jesus, and Jesus had said to Peter, put it away. Let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Peter's not here out of this sort of virtuous courage. No, I think Peter thought he was strong enough and subtle enough to fly under the radar and satisfy his curiosity despite his great fear. But it's not just his great fear. Remember, Jesus told Peter 12 hours before that he was going to deny him three times. And so here Peter is, knowing his fear, having been warned about his sin, and failing, and failing, and failing again, and sticking around despite falling to temptation. Now it is not for nothing that Paul tells Timothy twice Flee youthful passions. But as for you, O oh man of God, flee these things. It is not for nothing that Proverbs warns, he who sees danger and hides himself shall be safe, but the one who keeps going will fall. No, our lives should not smack of hanging around and snuggling close to temptation in the world. We should rather demonstrate the boldness and the energy and the zeal communicated by phrases like flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and peace. And Peter's example warns us of the danger of ignoring Scripture's advice. So first... Peter reminds us that we're susceptible to temptation no matter how long we've been following Jesus or how many victories we may have won. Second, he warns us of the importance of fleeing temptation. But third, Peter's example warns us of the consequences of continuing in sin rather than repenting quickly. Any of you who have ever lied, you know what happens when you lie once you usually feel like you need to keep lying to cover up the truth. Colin Smith again puts it this way. He says, What often can begin as a matter of foolish sin and a moment of weakness, when repeated becomes more and more a willful sin and a decision to keep going in what you've committed. Notice what happens with Peter. First, in the moment of his fear, standing around the fire with Jesus in the hands of the Sanhedrin, Jesus says, no, no, I don't know who Jesus is. But the next time, he swears an oath to confirm that he does not know Jesus. And then when it happens again, he actually calls down God's wrath on himself, invoking a curse to confirm that he does not know Jesus. When the initial sin and folly go unrepented of, sin becomes more and more willful and we become more and more trapped in it. This is true of lying, where each lie increases the stakes and makes us more and more convinced that we have to keep lying or we'll be worse off than ever. This is true of pornography that may start with a moment of curiosity or deceit, but it lures us and traps us and becomes more and more a matter of choice and then habit and then slavery. See, sin always tells us that repenting and coming clean will be far more painful than just hiding it, keeping it in the dark, and continuing. When the opposite is really true, that repenting now will always be less painful and more hopeful than hunkering down in our sin. And Peter's warning and example is when we do hunker down in our sin, It becomes darker and more willful and finally more enslaving in our lives. So that's the third warning that Peter gives us about our temptations to sin. But finally, let me give you one more. One more thing that Peter's example shows us. Peter's example shows us the hope that we can have in repentance. And it's hard to imagine in some ways a fall greater than Peter's. And it's frightening to think about the consequences. After all, isn't Jesus the one who said in in Luke chapter 9, He that is ashamed of me, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory? And hasn't Peter just invoked a curse on himself in his denial? And yet, you notice what happens there in that last verse, verse 72, that at the look of Jesus... And the remembrance of his word, Peter breaks down and weeps. There is grief over his sin that is evident in this weeping. There is repentance and a hatred of those sins in his tears. And the genuineness of that repentance is borne out over time. It's borne out in Peter's confession of faith in Christ and his commitment to Christ after the resurrection. It's borne out in his willingness to preach Christ in the face of prison and persecution in the years to follow. And that repentance leads to restoration and forgiveness and to hope. Because this Jesus at this moment was on his way to the cross to bear the curse that Peter had called down on himself in his stead. Because of Christ's death, Peter's repentance restores him to fellowship with Jesus and enables Peter to serve his Savior yet again. Peter turns out to be a living example of the verses we read earlier from 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But repentance is the key. Repentance is the key here. Our hope does not come from glossing over our past failures or minimizing our past failures or just shoving them under a rug. No, our hope comes from owning our sin and confessing it in all of its ugliness. Our hope does not come from deciding to just turn over a new leaf. It comes from hating our sin and entrusting ourselves to Jesus and asking Him on the basis of His death and resurrection to forgive us of His sins, to save us, and to make us His. That is where we find hope. And that is where we find the overwhelming and never ending grace and mercy of God. So, in the end, the very suffering we see mounting on Jesus in the first part of this passage is the hope for Peter's sin and ours that we find in the second part of the passage. Jesus went through abandonment and injustice and physical suffering and finally death under the wrath of God that we might be forgiven and accepted in His sight if we come to Him. And so the only question before each one of us this morning is how have we responded or how will we respond to such a Savior? Will we ignore his testimony in hard-hearted rejection like the chief priests and the false witnesses did? They heard his testimony of who he was and they rejected it. Or will we break down and weep in repentance for our sin? And will we receive and rest in faith alone on the risen Jesus who is at the right hand of the blessed one and who will come again on the clouds of heaven? Will our hope and trust be in Him? Will we flee temptation, watch and pray, and follow Him who died for us? That is the question for each one of us this morning. Let's pray. Father, how we thank You for sending Your Son through the suffering that we see before us in this passage this morning and more to come in the next few weeks. How we thank you for the hope Christ crucified and risen gives to sinners. And how I pray that we might flee from sin to such a hope. And Father, I pray for all of us, whether we have looked to Christ for one minute or an entire lifetime, would we be aware of how susceptible we are to temptation? Would we be quick to flee temptation? Would we be quick to repent and not let our sin become more willful and more enslaving? Oh, Father, rescue us, draw us to Christ, pour out your Spirit and enable us more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness, to the glory of God. And would you make this true of us for Christ's sake, we pray. Amen.